Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. HBCU Pride. I believe in HBCU culture and I believe in HBCU sports. This is what our show is about. HBCU Pride with Tim McCain and Derek Hall. Peace, family. You're listening to Believe in HBCUs with Tim McCain and Derek Hall. What's happening? How you What's doing today, I'm doing all right, man. I can't complain. I'm blessed. I woke up this morning. What is, is there to worry about? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're right, man. I mean, life is a beautiful thing. Life is a beautiful thing. Uh, especially a lot of things going on with um, HBCUs. Um, so we're going to go into current events today for, our, um, for today's episode. And the, uh, the first thing that I want to talk about is Brian Mills, the North Carolina Central uh, prospect um, who declared for the NFL draft. This brother, man, he was a part of Reese's top 250 list. He was a part of Box to Rose National Player of the Year recognition. He was going to if he was uh, going to play his senior season. He uh, led the MEAC in interceptions with five last year. He had three in a game. Um, That's big. And, uh, this brother – I mean, he had award after award, and I mean, I just can't wait to see what this brother does, you know what I mean, when it comes to HBCUs. Yeah, uh, so him being, what, he was a corner cornerback? Yes, um, sir. I think he just had to stay disciplined in his training through the NFL draft, you know, just stay patient, disciplined, work out twice a day, um, you know, because it's, it's easier for football players to make to leave you know, uh, if we get drafted, he'll be the second central corner within the last, I would say, what, five or six years to get right. drafted. Uh, I think, uh, what was his name? Ryan Smith? Ryan Smith, I think his name. Um, he got drafted by Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He went to Central. So he has somebody look. His name was Ryan Smith. He got drafted by Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So, in uh, 2016, so. Yeah, man, Central, they're coming up with some of these prospects, just like A&T. Speaking of A&T, they, um, they just got potentially a quarterback for the future, Zach Yeager. Uh, yeah, he, I seen that. You, didn't, you saw I seen that. it? I seen it. I was on Instagram scroll. I see Zach Yeager sign. So, that's big. That's big, but – you know, it, all, it takes it, – it has to be more than one. Oh, fast. So, yeah, it's a big name, but how many big names going to follow after that? That's the key. Right. Like, the key is getting multiple. Like, yo, one player can't, can't – one player can start a trend. It takes a team to build a program. So, a group of players can go build a program and win the national title. That's I mean, you're right, man. I mean, but I would just say this. I mean, one of the things that Zach Yeager talked about was, like, from the first time that he picked up a football, he wanted to dream about, you know, playing at the collegiate level. And then he actually talked about how his experience, I think it was, like, in the eighth grade. Let me make sure this is correct. He actually talked about how um, he had a couple of mentors who were a part of a and and uh, he said that he fell in love with it. Yes. He, so this is from this is from um, HBCU game day. And um, Yeager explained his choice of A&T in depth to HBCU game day. He gives much credit to former Howard quarterback and ESPN analyst Jay Walker for helping him land in Greensboro. 
Jay has been a mentor for me and has helped me and helped guide me through this process. Yeager said he fell in love with the HBCU experience in the eighth grade while touring several HBCUs during that summer. What really made it the place for me was the family feel and the overall atmosphere of the school. I loved everything about it. I know I made the best decision possible, and I look forward to what the future holds. Aggie pride. That's it, man. Yeah, like I said, and we need more to follow. When more follow, even like, yo, these, these D1s will worry a little bit. So Exactly. And, and, it kind of, and it kind of points back to, like, you know, having these young kids, even at a really young age, get that feel of that HBCU experience. So, if like, if you – um have a young athlete or whatnot who's going to kill in the league, you put that HBCU experience in them when they're young. You know what I mean? I I, I would say this. Like, you you tell them that it's more than life. There's more schools than – because growing up, I could say that I want to go Division I, Division I, Division I. And, you know, HBCUs don't look – it's not like, yo, Division I school. Let's not look at that school. Mm-hmm. But it's up to the parents, like, yo, let's just look at all the schools. Like, we talk about our education. Athletics are always going to be there. But it's about the education. But, like, yo, let's just be smaller HBCUs. I think that's the key. It's, if you get them there and they're busy, right. most likely they're going to want to sign or love the coach. So. I agree. I think visit them, uh, you know, let them visit the campus when they're young. But also, look at it this way. When you see – um. You'll see a lot of kids wearing, like, Duke apparel, uh, UNC Chapel Hill apparel, State apparel. This here in the North Carolina area, you see a lot of, of um, parents who, are really, who love sports. They ingrain kind of that sports culture at a young age. And I think that could be potentially a way also to where people are like, hey, look, like a Hampton shirt. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that's kind of dope. You see Hampton, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Once Salem State, when they're young, you know what I mean? Taking to some of the right. games, get the feel of it. I'm telling you, brother, that would be a, a way for some of these young cats to potentially join uh, HBCU programs. Yeah, definitely. I think they will. I think it's. I think most kids are like scared, mm. so they're just waiting for like, oh, I can win with this many people. I think they want to go or go alone. They want star players to come with them. Just like this. This how. Uh, 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 Zion and RJ did. They met up at a camp. They started talking. Like, what school you want to? Let's go do. What are we going to do together? I think you know, kids and they start doing that. Like, let's go to HCUs together. Right. I think that's the only way. I think if they do that, it can happen. For sure. For sure, man. Um, I want to get into um another current event that happened. Uh, Lou Brock. He uh was the first. A player from an HBCU to go to any Hall of Fame. Luke Brock. Luke Brock. Luke Brock. He played for the uh, Chicago Cubs for a few seasons and mainly for the St. Louis Cardinals for about 16 seasons. This brother, he led the league. He actually um, led the league in uh, steals from like for like six or seven straight years. Um, he, by the time he retired, he was the all-time uh, uh, base stealer. This man was an incredible player. Matter of fact, he was the first, I think uh, in 1959, he actually won a championship 
And uh, I think it was the first one. It was uh, the national. Let me make sure I get this correct. Make sure I get this correct. Um, he was the first. He said he won the Intercollegiate Athletics National Championship. It was the uh, the first African American team to win that title, and that was 1959. So that's that. You can make a movie by that. You know what I mean? The first team to win it, Lou Brock was a part of. Um, you know, Lou Brock was a guy who uh, people doubted him in Chicago. They were like, you know, who is this guy? There was this um, uh, pitcher named Ernie Brigoli, mm-hmm. who was supposed to be the guy who the Cubs traded for, and they said this was going to be our guy. They're like, Ernie Brigoli is going to be the guy. Lou Brock was just – he just didn't pan out. But when he went to St. Louis – when he went to St. Louis, Johnny Keene, the general manager at the time, believed in him. And um, that belief in uh, Lou Brock gave Lou Brock the confidence to steal bases because the Cubs wouldn't, weren't, didn't allow him to do that. So he was able to be his exceptional self and to be the first HBCU player to go to any hall, I think, or to go to, when I say any hall, the first HBCU player to go to a hall in baseball, that's big time. Yeah, baseball is big time considered that, you know, it has always been the all-white sport, per se. But it definitely is big, but, you know, I think we need more black people to play baseball, too, as well. And they yeah. can bring baseball back in HBCUs, too, as well. I know, you know what? You're right. I know some, some HBCUs, they, well, they don't really have baseball teams. But some they really start bringing that back. I think as a black community, we need to start playing baseball more. Even though we yeah. get mad, want to fight if a ball get hits us. But do you know that thing, you know? That happens period though, right? It happens period. I think it happens because we don't play the game mm-hmm. and we're not used to that. Like, yo, we're not used to that may happen. Like, like in football, you play football, you're used to somebody, a teammate falling on your leg or something going wrong. But in baseball, we're not used to that because they don't play it. Mm. Well, I'm going to just tell you this, Derek. When it comes to baseball, baseball was really the first um, national sport that really uh, that really gave the way for um, integration in sports. And people don't always recognize that. I mean, yeah, they'll talk about Jackie Robinson, but they don't really talk about, like, the um, – matter of fact, not only was Jackie Robinson um, uh, the first, you know, player to be integrated – Really, baseball was really the first sport where African Americans actually own their own league, the Negro Leagues. And nobody talks about that either. So while baseball is no longer a sport that has black um, athletes or the same level of uh, black excellence, even though there are some, we need to recognize the baseball players that actually are in um, the league. However, it used to be a sport that was dominated by not just Caucasians, but by African-Americans. And then we saw Latinos and we saw Afro-Latinos in the sport now. But I'm just telling you, man, baseball was was our sport in the beginning, man. And it just kind of dwindled after um, integration started. And then also we saw more African-Americans playing basketball because basketball was second. I don't want to say it dwindled, I think. I intershifted to like other things. Like okay. baseball, I guess, cool. 
And parents, parents, parents like baseball. I'm like, yo, and I'm the kid. My, my dad likes baseball, but I like this. Right. So the momentum shifted. And probably still play baseball. Like, I still like baseball to this day, but yeah. my momentum shifted to these other sports. Why? I, yo, I love this more than baseball. That's all right. it is. I don't think I'm a man. just our interest kind of peaked, and baseball it shifted. Yeah, it, it baseball. There's a few things that happen with baseball, and I think with African Americans. One, baseball um, wasn't a part of our popular culture. It didn't make that shift. So, like. You know, when you would like when magic, because what happened really was the 70s basketball was not the same. You know what I mean? Basketball, it was the ABA and the NBA. In the 80s, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, they kind of re up the sport. And then in the 90s, you had Michael Jordan. I mean, when you think well, about. I think those sports, like the black people became the stars. Breaking, exactly. I think, you know, during the mid-90s, what baseball failed is if they wanted to bring the black youth back to the sport, I felt like they should have promoted the kid more. The kid mm-hmm. had his own shoes. The kid was the true. Okay. Ken Griffey was Ken Griffey was That's just true. the biggest star. Okay, and also he was a, he was a big star. He was a big star for baseball, but he should have been a bigger star. During that time, like that, people was going to the baseball game for King Griffey. Yeah, man. You know what, too? Also, and I think this is something, too, that people really don't really recognize. They kind of recognize it, but they don't. But baseball still had, I mean, one of the biggest stars was a biracial kid in Derek and, Jeter. And Derek, no, but Derek Jeter during that time was, was there, but during the early 90s, mid 90s, you know. Derek Jeter was still like a young kid. He wasn't, I think, after he started winning championships, well, he started winning championships for the Yankees, so nobody, it's like, we love you, but we hate the Yankees. Well, we're we going to love you more. No, they're going to hate the Yankees more. So I think that's what, what started his momentum down. And, you know, he, he definitely was popping too. Yeah, man, he definitely was Derek Jeter. And then you see a lot of the Afro-Latino influence too. Mm-hmm. That we gotta that we gotta recognize too, but um, for some um, I really want to talk about something too, um, you know when it comes to HBCUs in the NFL, you know a lot of people feel like there isn't recognition when it comes to HBCU, but the NFL gives recognition to HBCUs. They they create programs for people not only who want to uh, play in sports but also in sports administration. Matter of fact. Um, Florida, Florida Memorial um, just joined the NFL Campus Connection Program to help educational initiatives. So I just wanted to say that they also have done things like the NFL Rodin Fellows to increase career opportunities for students from HBCUs and other programs. This was, um, this was a report done by the undefeated. And I just wanted to shout that, shout that out because, like, Derek, in your opinion, do you feel like um, – I mean, honestly, when it comes to football, HBCUs, and the NFL, there's a richer history of the NFL working with HBCUs compared to the NBA and HBCUs. And you see the same thing with players. And then when, when, you, when you compare HBCU players from the NFL to the NBA, there's a vast difference. There's a vast difference. 
Um, like I, I think the NFL knows where its bread and butter is. In the sense of you can't bite the hand that carried the game Ooh. for a long time. Even though we don't they don't much actually don't much carry the game is for the star power that they have. But for like forty years to like mid to the early nineties to 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 the early nineties, HBCU players was was the head honchos in, in the NFL. Like Jerry Rice, uh, me and Joe Green was, you know, Walter Pay was still reigning supreme. And um Shannon Sharp, just yeah, so uh doing doing that, NFL knows like yo, if you want the HBCUs, our star power wouldn't be as much as it is. It just, you know, now HBC, HBCUs are not it's a few players that trickle down make it through it's just the players really come from Division One schools where they get promoted more, they see more. Uh, 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 NFL scout will be more inclined to drive to LSU in Southern, you mm. know. So, and that's in the same city. Mm. So, I think we need. I think that there need to be more scouts. Like, yo, your job is strictly go scout. HBCUs in the Southwest Division, because you know the scouts. You get you get your whole region, like you West Coast region. They see you out there, and you hit as many schools as you can in like two before you come on and give a report. And I'm not sure if it works like that, but it's similar to that. So I think we need more HBCU scouts. Like go scout this player, go get that tape. But also does with the coaches and HBCUs. Like yo, promote your kids more. Make your kids feel like they can't make it too as well. So it goes both ways. You're right. It really does. It goes both ways. I think you have to, like we, like we've said before, man. I mean, the the main thing is we have to invest money into that, so there can be more scouts, so there can be more uh, programs that promote HBCU sports. Um, but for our last topic, brother, I want to talk about uh, kind of like what we were discussing before uh, the show started. Um, the best. Air, the best sports air in basketball. So I was doing, you know, different research, and you can look at different things like you look at the, the best HBCU coaches from a basketball perspective or the best basketball players um, from the HBCU perspective. And to be honest with you, man, I really when – you, when you talk about the best basketball players when it comes to the numbers of what they did while in college and then in professional, it's – it's, lo- it's lopsided because it's like – when I say lopsided, it's like you see nothing in that. You see nothing like in the 70s, like the, like the, the, the late 70s to like the mid-80s, and then you start to see some basketball players from the 90s. Like you start to see Ben Wallace. Um, you see Charles Oakley. And then like back in the, in the 50s, that's where you see uh, the Sam Jones – you see, uh, then you see other players. So it's like, for me, I still think the best sports era was from, I would say, 56 to 69 when it comes to basketball. Because you had a lot of players, including Sam Jones, including Earl the Pro Monroe. Um, I think the brother's name was uh, Dick uh, Shannon. Or, some, or Yeah, that's his brother's name. I'm going to look that up. But um, 
in your opinion, uh, Derek, what was the best uh, basketball sports era? In HBCU? In HBCUs. Oh, uh, but uh, I had to be a little biased. So uh, I put much said North Carolina, and I would probably say Earl of the Problem World. Mm. I think because, you know, he played for my hometown team and showed out and didn't want to mix. There was no drop off with his style of play. You know, with his, his star power. So I would say the, the, I would probably go with Earl the Pearl during his time. I feel you. I feel you. Don't forget Cleo Hill Sr. Um, he actually um, could have been a, a great basketball player in Boston, but I'm going to tell you, man, like integration during that time period, um, he kind of got kicked out because of the color of his skin, man. Like he didn't, he was not given the same opportunities. When, when you look at basketball, basketball really, it took some time for, for brothers to really be respected in the league. You know, and Cleo Hill was one of those guys who was a great player at Winston Salem State who was kind of blackballed by politics and stuff like that. So I want to acknowledge Cleo Hill Sr. And Cleo Hill Jr. is actually the head coach of Winston Salem State right now. So I want to Winston Salem State for that. Um, but um, I don't know, Brett. Let me let me make sure I have this. Um, make sure I have the the, the brother's name from the fifty edition. Let me see. Who I'm looking for? I'm looking for um, the, the top HBCUs. I want to make sure that I have this correct. It's the top HBCU. Because when I talk about a sports era there, I want to I – what I really want to do is I, I look at, like, the top basketball players from that sports era and the top basketball coaches from the sports era. And to be honest with you, you see more um, – you see more football. When you type up on Google search, you'll see football, 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 HBCUs. And then when you when you look at basketball, you have to really dig a lot deeper into that. They definitely have to get a lot deeper into that. Um, but also, I think, you know, we also need to define what do you mean by top basketball player, top program? What do you want your program to be based on? What do you want your kids to succeed? And the rate and the graduation went all goes into that. Like, yo, you could have a subpar season, but you got scholar athletes that excel in on the court and outside the court. That makes a great basketball program too, as well. You're right. You're right. The the brother's name who I'm talking about is Dick Barnett from tennis from uh, Tennessee A and I State College. It's now called Tennessee State. Um, he played from 1955 to 1959. But Derek, look at this. So this is why I say this is from the undefeated. So this is by uh, Donald Hunt. Donald Hunt, his list of the top, you know, best HBCU basketball players of all time is Al Adels, okay. six-foot guard from North Carolina State, 1956 to 1960. Dick Barnett, six-foot-four, 1955 to 1959, Tennessee State University. Zelmo Betty, six-foot-nine center, 1958 to 1962. And then Bob Dandridge, from Norfolk State University, 1965 to 1969. And then you see, so I'm like, so that's why I'm like, yo, when you look at some of those lists, and then Cleo Hill, six foot, uh, six foot one, five, 1957 to 1961. I'm telling you, man, there was something special about, um, you know, 
basketball from an HBCU perspective before integration happened. But when integration happened, you didn't see the same level of basketball talent at HBCUs. Right. I agree with you. So it, it definitely is interesting, man. But next week, next week, uh, family, we're going to be discussing – this is going to be interesting. This might end up being controversial. But next week, we're going to talk about what was the best football era in HBCU history. Okay. They're, okay. They're, they're gonna, you, you think they're ready for us? They're going to have to be. They're going to have to be. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Have to be. Have to be. You're listening to Believe in HBCU. Believe. With Tim McCann and Derek Hall. Peace, fam. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.